if we go back to the comparison between Sweden and Italy, which is functional to represent at least two prototypes of different narratives of the crisis, I would call the Italian approach fighting Corona, I would call it. While the Swedish approach is more like living with Corona. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time for episode 19 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. Joining me on the phone line, Mark Vandenbosch. And a little bit later on in the show, we'll have our expert guest today, a returning guest, Professor Giuliano Di Baldessare, the director of the Center for Natural Hazards and Disaster Sciences at Uppsala University. It's a part two of the second part of the interview. So it's the third time he's going to be on the podcast, uh, this time talking a little more in detail about comparisons between Italy and Sweden, kind of a uh, update from his uh, earlier uh, interview in April. So, Mark, things are happening fast here now in Sweden when it comes to testing. It seems like that's the, the big thing on the agenda here in Stockholm at the moment. Correct. As of Monday, anyone who wants to is able to get a test for antibodies to show if they have been infected with the coronavirus at some point early this year. But not surprisingly, the servers that govern the app where you're supposed to to sort of book your your test all crashed. (laughs) So I don't know how many people were able to get through and actually book their antibody test, but hopefully they'll resolve these technical glitches and over the next few weeks we can aggregate more data that will show us where we are. So it's even harder than like a big concert ticket or something like that that otherwise (laughs) would crash servers. The test for the antibodies, that, that is the good test too, right? That's the test that people really want because it shows if uh, you actually have some immunity or not. And it took a long time for this thing to arrive, huh? It certainly has, and it's something that we definitely need to, to see, to understand. They have done some studies already, and we already talked about that at the beginning of May, I think late April, there was a surprisingly low number of people in these random testing that showed they've had corona this year in Sweden. Low because we haven't had the lockdown, so we thought this would have spread far more. They've had some more updated tests, and that's also sort of interesting. This is uh, what they call week 19 and week 20, which for the average person, means the middle of May. And the figures coming from that time show that only 4.8% of the population of Sweden had been infected with corona in the middle of May. Uh, A week later, the number had risen to 6.1%, still very, very small numbers. However, if you dig a little deeper, one thing sticks out, and that is Stockholm is overrepresented. In other words, the infection rate in Stockholm is far higher. It's around 10%, or at least it was as of about three, four weeks ago. 10% of the Stockholm population has has had coronavirus. Exactly. And then if you extrapolate this, you say to yourself, well, we get midsummer coming up, a major holiday here in Sweden, and then people are going to start to spread out. The restrictions on traveling have been lifted. It also means that a lot of people have not been exposed at all. So looking at the trends of what's happening in the United States, where I think 22 states are getting uh, surges in corona infections right now, other states that were not hit early on, mostly inland states, I wonder if this will not be a similar process here in Sweden because of the infection ratio. It must be all over the world, right? Because now borders are opening up, uh, countries are letting uh, foreigners come in. So it'll be domestically here in Sweden, but also, of course, around the world. And as you mentioned, in the United States. So it's both a process of people fanning out, but also uh, more and more people kind of 
clustering together because of protests and just general uh, reopenings and complacency. Let's face it, people are tired of, of social distancing. They're tired of washing their hands. They're tired of all the things that, that, that we've been doing for so many months now. So, yeah, I mean, it will be good to know if you're immune or not, because I think that there will be some some spikes coming up in the uh, in the days and weeks ahead. Another little tidbit in the statistics that I was able to dig out in terms of the Swedish situation is that the infection rate among children is actually quite a bit higher than the rest of the general population. So I don't know what that means, but if you see uh, children as potential agents of contagion, that may be the case. They don't tend to develop serious symptoms, but are actually infected and potentially spreading the virus. A lot of unknowns, a lot of unknowns. And I think this is symbolized also by some of the information we're getting in terms of what drugs are effective against the virus. Uh, there was a, a lot of publicity uh, about two, three weeks ago about an article discussing hydroxychloroquine, sort of a miracle drug, or at least interpreted as such by some people. A drug has been around uh, for a long time to uh, combat uh, malaria. Exactly. There's a lot of data has been used for several decades, uh, mostly in Africa. And actually, it's gone out of favor. There's some better drugs now, but it's something that we've had a lot of experience with for a long time. But it's also a drug that has some side effects. Uh, however, in this case, it was determined that it, the benefits uh, outweighed the side effects. However, the Lancet came out with an article about three weeks ago where they said that there's a lot of risks associated with hydroxychloroquine and that ultimately it led to more deaths than it prevented. However, the Lancet then had to sort of backtrack on that statement because some of the data was inaccurate or not reliable. So there was a lot of uh, discussion about this. Perhaps the whole process had been politicized, the way of criticizing the current American administration where Trump had advocated the use of hydroxychloroquine. However, yesterday, the FDA once again went back in an official statement and said, hydroxychloroquine, not good. Stop taking it. Apparently, more studies have been done since then. And now the risk seemed to far outweigh the benefits. So it's really, really difficult to know who to listen to, what are the facts, who knows? Who to trust? Who are the experts? Uh, has the process been so contaminated by the politicization of the corona crisis? Uh, it's become very confusing. Well, that's what this podcast is here to do, is hopefully make a little bit of sense of some of these issues, uh, not just with me and Mark talking about this, but of course with our expert guests as well. And one of our expert guests, uh, Bjorn Olson, one of the early episodes, uh, Doctor, has been making some uh, statements here lately, and uh, he's been, from the beginning, very critical of the Swedish response, and he's come out in even uh, stronger terms about that, about uh, what he would have done had he been in the position of uh, Anders Tegnell. I don't want to sort of put words in his mouth, but that's basically what he's saying. And I think we should try to get him back on the podcast again, Mark, if we get a chance to really get an update on the uh, Swedish situation from a medical perspective now that we have a few months of uh, observations and experience to go on. Yeah, an interesting thing, all these uh, drugs, uh, hydroxychloroquine, which is talked about, another one, remdesivir, a drug that has uh, been proven uh, effective in reducing the number of days in the hospital when you're impacted by corona. This is a drug that's been used to treat Ebola, I think, in the past. And that particular drug, there's a consensus that it is effective. However, it's about to run out. So that also is going to create some problems. All right, time now to phase into the other part of the episode when we talk to one of our expert guests. In this case, it's Giuliano once again, an Italian by birth and living here in Sweden for a number of years. He has some really keen insights into the way that Italy has handled the crisis. On the previous episode, we looked at some of the fear factors and the way the virus was perceived in Italy versus how it is in Sweden. And now we're going to get into more of the nitty gritty of the respective responses a couple of months later after our first interview with uh, Professor Giuliano Di Baldessari, the uh, director of the Center for Natural Hazards and Disaster Sciences based at uh, Uppsala University. 
All right, so Giuliano, so we um, we spoke last in the middle of April. Seems like an eternity ago. You know, we spoke about uh, Italy and Sweden then, and I think that's a, it's a nice way to structure our discussion again here today. So, um, in this time that has elapsed, how do you think the situation has changed, and how do you see things now compared to how you saw things back then in terms of how this is developing in these two countries? Hi, Eric. Uh, it's nice to speak to you again. Many things have changed over the past five, six weeks. It has been uh, really interesting to look at the way in which crisis has been managed in Sweden and Italy. Uh, since, as we discussed last time, the two countries seem to be on the two extreme ends in which we have um, very uh, very hard measures in Italy versus soft measures in uh, in Sweden. And thus, it has been interesting since the situation in Italy has changed uh, over the past few weeks. They have uh, lifted some of the measures. Uh, they are opening more and more. Uh, while in Sweden, uh, in terms of management, there is a, a persistence of most of the measures, which were soft, but they are kept uh, for a longer time. So in terms of where we stand now, I mean, uh, do you think the trajectories have been radically different or do you think we're ending up in the same place as some as some of the medical experts say that uh, is inevitable that all countries sooner or later will end up in the same uh, situation? Uh, so in the, in the last interview, what I said is that despite the differences in terms of uh, the actual measures, Sweden and Italy were following the same goal. They had the same objective to uh, save lives to protect the public health by uh, flattening the curve. And this was done with different measures, as we discussed, since uh, the socioeconomic context as well as the cultural aspects are uh, relatively different in two countries. And uh, nowadays, if we look into in terms of how many people have been uh, infected uh, by corona in, uh, in the two countries, you, we can see that the overall outcome is relatively similar in the two countries. It is estimated in both countries that between 5 and 10 percent of the population has been affected. So indeed, the net effect of the two measures, despite they were different, is relatively similar. Giuliano, as a crisis management expert, that has to be extremely interesting for you, right? That uh, very different approaches, but a similar result. Uh, what, what does that say about government action in general and, and how to manage a crisis as complex as this one? Indeed, it's very interesting from a, from a crisis management point of view, especially uh, when it comes to uh, the management of, of such a, a widespread epidemics which is indeed a pandemic. It's, it's also nice to observe it because there has been a lot of emphasis on the differences uh, between uh, Italy and Sweden. Uh, but as I was uh, pointing out in the last interview, the goal is very similar and the outcomes have been so far very similar. There are multiple uh, dimensions that make the, the measures to be different and having a similar outcome. And they range from uh, different levels of risk perception as well as different uh, socioeconomic context cultural aspects that differentiate the countries and also the distribution of the population in terms of age. An additional aspect which is interesting to see is been the role of media, uh, social media as well as official media, since it has been uh, strictly related to risk perception and thus also on the way in which the different countries have dealt with the corona crisis. Uh, most importantly, what I could see is that in both countries, media have been overall quite supportive of the government. Yeah, I agree here in Sweden. That's generally been the case. Um, it seems a little bit, Giuliano, that the, the media is now, or let's say there's more of a cracks in the consensus that have been built up here over the past few months. And it just seems like the, the media narrative is also perhaps turning slightly negative. I would say that that is really accurate. So what we, we found in Sweden and Italy is that in the first part of the crisis, both governments had a very high level of popularity. You know, that's rather common during crisis. In fact, government 
is responding and uh, there is a common understanding that it is better to support it rather than uh, trying to, to make big changes, which is quite uh, rare, as you may know, in Italy and governments typically have a very short life. What we see over over the past few weeks, indeed, in Sweden, uh, there is criticism um, towards the Swedish government, uh, in particular uh, related to the low level of tests, as well as the case of the elderly care homes. And in Italy uh, also, uh, while the making a lockdown was, uh, in a certain sense, relatively easy in terms of, OK, you do a lockdown. At that time, there was a lot of fear uh, about the virus. Italy was also one of the very first countries which was affected, and thus the entire nation was really united around this idea, uh, let's stay home. But now opening up is much more challenging because the, the question is how you open up, what you open up, how you prioritize. And thus also there, there is the, the criticism towards the government has been increasing on uh, different aspects from uh, a very extended school closure, which is most likely the, the longest one, at least so far in Europe, to also the opening up of borders. I mean, I think one of the things that's been interesting with this in terms of Sweden, how much attention Sweden has received for its uh, response, and not all of it's been very positive. I think a lot of there's been a lot of questioning of this. And even uh, other countries here in Scandinavia, Denmark, Norway, uh, they're now skeptical about letting Swedes into their own countries because they think Sweden has not done enough. How is it? How has Sweden been perceived in Italy? The aspect related to the opening the borders. Uh, well, Italy is opening the borders to all European countries, including Sweden, from the 3rd of June, one of the very first countries opening the borders. There are other countries like Greece, they are also opening to many uh, European countries, but not to Italy and Sweden, uh, since they are indeed among the most affected countries in Europe. Now, the other Scandinavian countries, they had a different approach. When we discussed last time, I said in Sweden, in Italy, essentially the approach has been to mitigate the spreading of the virus, flattening the curve trying to introduce a social distance measure. And thanks to these measures, the spreading has been, let's say, around 5-10% of the population in Italy and Sweden. Now, in uh, other Nordic countries, they actually they did something different, which was really to, you know, like contain the virus. That makes a difference because if you have that approach, if you want to keep a very low level of virus spreading in the country, uh, then uh, I guess they, they want to be more strict in terms of border controls. And uh, it makes sense for their perspective uh, not to open to countries that still have the virus circulating. So the, the key point is, from the Italian point of view, there is some still some level of virus circulating and is similar to the most affected European countries. So they, they are opening borders to essentially all European countries. But the Nordic ones that have had a very low number of people infected so far, they want to keep that way. And uh, thus they are more strict towards other countries, including Sweden. I guess we're making comparisons uh, between countries, but also a sort of assessing the situation in, in any given country. Data is the way that we generally do this. And there's been a lot of confusion. I'm not sure that we... Um, feel more confident in the data now than we did uh, five or six weeks ago when we last spoke, Giuliano. What do you think had the, the way the, the data, the way the data has been compiled and reported and communicated between now and then? How, how have you seen that development? Uh, that's, that's horrible, to be honest. I have no other words because I see uh, 
that the the abuse of uh, global data sets is, it has become to a incredibly high level when we work into uh, natural hazards and including epidemics uh, we we often work with global data sets and we make comparison but we are aware of all the limitations that are associated with this data especially in the very first months or years uh, since the data still uh, have to undergo a validation what you see nowadays is that okay there are not only the the official medias, we know that uh, newspapers and other uh, media, they need uh, some strong headline to sell their stuff. But uh, you can also see that uh, a number of so-called experts or scientists, they are drawing conclusions uh, using data that are, in fact, not meant to that goal. Uh, we already discussed that data are not comparable across countries. At fatalities, for instance, different countries use diverse criteria uh, to determine whether or not a uh, given fatality is associated with COVID. And also there is uh, another aspect which is really important, that is that even if you had exactly the same number of fatalities, uh, the key point is what is the percentage of the population which has been affected? Two countries, for the sake of simplicity, let's imagine they have the same population. And in both countries, you have 1,000 fatalities. But in one of the two countries, you have already 40% of the population which is affected, while in the other one, it's only 4%. So clearly, the two countries are not the same, because the, the country which had only 4% of people affected still has a big potential to face more fatalities in the future. So I, I think it really makes no sense to, to compare those things. I mean, it is important to monitor them, to look at the trajectory within the country, but the direct comparison, it really makes very little sense. There is also another aspect, which is um, the timing. I mean, it's really, we are uh, in the middle of the crisis. This is not a crisis which, you know, it's not uh, a big flood or an earthquake, which is going to take uh, a few hours or days or even weeks within a limited space. Uh, this is a pandemic which takes uh, a place around the world. It will be there for perhaps a couple of years. So... It is really too early to draw any type of robust conclusions based on uh, this type of data. It's clear that since Sweden uh, has taken a different approach from many other countries, it was expected uh, that uh, it would have been under the lights and uh, in the sense that all data are checked uh, very carefully uh, by different countries around the world. So the first thing is that Sweden in indeed has been looked very carefully, uh, but for instance, this last and news about mortality per capita in a week is really, uh, from my point of view, beyond everything which is acceptable in, uh, in analyzing the way in which a crisis in, is unfolding. The per capita, I already criticized that last time, is clearly pointing to smaller countries that have a good control of the situation. So Belgium, the Netherlands, Sweden, of course, yeah. And uh, while you may overlook other countries, larger countries, which have less control over, for instance, the number of fatalities, we know that, uh, for instance, when, when we compare excess mortality to the so-called official COVID-19 fatalities, Belgium and Sweden are doing much better than many other countries. For me, it's also a little bit disturbing to speak about these numbers where behind that there are people, every single human life matters. The, the obsession around these numbers is kind of sick from my point of view, especially because we are completely overlooking many other dimensions of public health. 
there are many aspects that are not being considered sufficiently, especially when we uh, want to discuss different uh, measures to contain the virus spreading. Why don't we start uh, looking also at the other dimensions of the public health, uh, the mental dimension, how children as well as adults are, have been uh, traumatized, extreme poverty, by domestic violence during the lockdowns, and inequality, most importantly. Of course, there are there are a few articles that speak about this, but they are overall quite overlooked. And it seems that whatever you speak about, you always have these numbers about number of confirmed cases, which we know that, in fact, only depends on the way you test people, where you test, how many tests you do. A lot of precision about numbers that, in fact, are quite arbitrary. At the same time, very little discussion about what we are really going to do under the corona crisis. We have a two-year crisis. How do we intend to manage this? Do we have a bigger picture of how we can manage this period and go through it? It's a very good uh, perspective there, Julian. I think that also this idea of a, a two-year crisis and trying to get into the minds of the decision-makers and the epidemiologists and such that work for the government, perhaps that's how Sweden has been thinking about this as a two-year crisis or at least a six-month crisis or a one-year crisis Whereas some of these other countries maybe have thought about this as a one-month crisis, a two-month crisis, we've got to lock down hard. But in Sweden, it seems like they're saying, well, whatever we do, we have to do something that's a little more sustainable because we know this is going to draw out for months, perhaps years to come. I agree. And uh, I think this is this goes with, um, if you go back to the comparison between Sweden and Italy, which is functional to represent at least to prototypes of different narratives of the crisis. I would call the Italian approach fighting corona, I would call it. Uh, While the Swedish approach is more like living with corona in the sense of, okay, we have this virus, this virus will be around for a couple of years. So what we want to do is just to make sure that the healthcare systems keep on uh, function and we have a a spreading which is, uh, you know, as low as possible across the population. The, you know, the, the World Health Organization at some point a few weeks ago uh, presented Sweden as a model for the second phase of the countries going out of the lockdown. I'm not sure whether or not Sweden is a model, but definitely uh, there are many areas in Sweden in which without very hard measures, the spreading of the virus has been uh, very limited. The main outbreaks uh, were in the most dense part of the countries, especially the Stockholm region. And then uh, there is a very big scene, I, I would say, that uh, of, uh, of Sweden, which is in the elderly care homes. Right. And, and understanding now has, of course, acknowledged that. But can you just sort of compartmentalize that? Can that be sort of put aside and separated from the, the general response of Sweden and, and other countries as well? Sweden's not unique in having very high mortality rates in elderly care facilities. Is that, a, is that a reasonable way to assess the performance of the crisis managers? It will be in uh, three, four years time. Yes, indeed. Once that uh, the crisis is over, uh, we will be able to compare different aspects. What is important is to look at all dimensions of public health, and the physical dimension includes uh, the excess uh, mortality. I insist on the excess mortality because we know that uh, in uh, many countries, a number of operations have been postponed uh, to cope with the corona crisis. And uh, in other cases, the healthcare system has collapsed. Uh, and for me, every human life is as important. The key point is what is the, you need to compare different countries in terms of excess mortality. And this we can only do 
whoever wants that the crisis is over. Okay, as you mentioned, we can't really assess the, uh, we can't put this crisis behind us and sort of make a sort of final conclusion. But uh, perhaps some preliminary observations, Giuliano, in terms of what, uh, since we last spoke, what things have caught your eye in terms of the positives and the negatives in Italy and Sweden in terms of the response? I partly uh, spoke already for the case of Sweden. So I think what was positive is that it showed that with very simple rules, the epidemics can be contained, especially in um, less densely populated areas. Uh, While uh, at the same time, what I didn't find acceptable in Sweden is the way in which elderly uh, care homes were managed uh, with not enough protection material, and also the quarantine of old people came two, three weeks too late, and uh, the outcome has been very catastrophic. And this is particularly not acceptable from my point of view in the Swedish context, since the Scandinavian uh, welfare state has been one of the one of the diamonds of uh, this part of the world. We do not expect old people to be treated like that. On the other hand, when it comes to Italy, uh, what I liked is the way in which people responded uh, to the crisis. Italy is prone to many uh, different hazards. We have earthquakes volcanoes, flooding, you name it. And again, uh, we could see the resilience of communities and individuals to cope with the situation, to deal with uh, extremely prolonged lockdowns. We had to stay home no matter what. And despite that, the mental state of Italian people is quite incredible. What is more difficult in Italy, however, is when then uh, this short-term emergency becomes a long-term crisis, uh, which requires more planning. And thus, uh, this is... My concern, especially when it comes to the uh, to the future and the younger generation, schools uh, will be closed for uh, more than 200 days. They will not open until uh, mid September, which is an extremely long time if you look at it from the perspective of children and kids. And this is, for my point of view, really not acceptable for multiple reasons. Uh, reason number one is that we know, and there are already signals in Italy of kids having uh, being traumatized and having problems because of the situation. And we also know that schools is not only about learning things, it's also about social lives, and kids need to socialize. The second point is also that uh, what is happening now with the reopening after the lockdowns is that we have people going back to work. And, uh, and in Italy, we often have the mothers have to stay home with kids. And this is increasing inequalities across genders. We also have the other unintended effect of kids spending a lot of time with their grandparents that we know is the very last thing we want them to do. More on the long term, there is also inequalities across kids because uh, there are many cases which are very privileged. They have educated parents, so homeschooling is working fine. But we know that this is not always the case. So social differences will be exacerbated by this crisis. If I can ask one last question, uh, Giuliano, about Italy. In terms of the regional aspects of Italy, of course, we talk a lot about Italy as a whole, but uh, not so much about the north versus the south, which has been traditionally a real sort of a fault line in uh, Italian politics and Italian uh, society and culture. How has the pandemic played out in terms of the regional aspects there? This is, uh, I mean, thanks for the question. First of all, there are very big differences in um, both terms of socioeconomic context in the northern and southern part of Italy, but also there has been a lot of differences in terms of the diffusion of, of the virus. And this is also connects to the fact uh, of my criticism to the use of per capita data for fatigue 
fatalities. The vast majority of fatalities uh, in Italy have been in the north, especially the Lombardy region uh, around the city of Milano, uh, while the south has been uh, almost untouched by the virus. It's one of the geographical areas in, uh, in Europe which was least affected. Historically, we, we have this conflict between south and northern Italy, uh, which dates back to the, to the time in which Italy was not unified. Uh, this meant that we have about uh, 150 years of history as a united country, and there are still cultural differences and thus also conflicts. And there is this um, idea of the productive north, which is the, in the industrialized part of the country uh, versus the more uh, rural uh, south. Uh, but indeed, the, the, the picture is much more complex than this. But it is interesting to see that during the crisis, this, the, this conflict has been exacerbated. Many people in the South, they complain uh, they were forced to do a lockdown despite a very low level of contagion in these areas. Uh, while uh, right now there is a lot of concern about the opening of the borders. What is interesting is that the concern is not about the fact that from the 3rd of June, Italy is opening the borders to all European countries, but rather from people in the South that they are also opening uh, the regional borders to people coming from Lombardy. It shows that, in a sense, this uh, conflict between North and South, it hasn't been solved over the past decades and uh, exacerbating also in the coming days. There'll be uh, many more opportunities to talk to you uh, to assess the uh, results of the reopening and uh, beyond this, because uh, obviously this crisis is not going to go away anytime soon, even if life returns to some semblance of normalcy in countries around Europe and around the world. So, Professor Giuliano Di Baldassare, thanks very much for joining us again on the podcast and look forward to speaking to you again in the weeks ahead. 